when you understand it firsthand, I'm able to go back to my teams, structure the right solutions. If I have to move my budgets around, if I have to move my team around so that we are able to create customized solution for a particular client scenario or a particular business unit internally, we do that all the time. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure, and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. Here are some quick stats from my guest today, Rajesh Ahuja. He's been in HR for 22 years. He's lived and worked across five countries and three continents. And in his current role, he hires thousands of people per year across 32 different countries. And yes, I did say thousands. In this episode, Rajesh shares his ways of measuring success when working with so many people. We also ascertain his thoughts on how technology is changing the recruiting world. Let's dive right in. Rajesh Ahuja, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, making today happen. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure is all mine. Uh, We're going to have some fun. I'm going to pick your brain. And I'm hoping to leave the audience with lots of morsels and takeaways that uh, they can utilize and hopefully incorporate into their daily day or maybe into some big projects that they might be working on. Likewise, Adam. I hope I could contribute uh, a little bit to that. and look forward to this conversation. Great. So before we get rolling, if you don't mind, share with me, what's your elevator pitch? Ah, my elevator pitch. I am a pretty strong talent management guy. Worldly-wise, I've lived and worked across five countries, three continents, and uh, feel very confident about uh, navigating any organization through the talent world. Gotcha. How long have you been in this space for? 22 years now. Oh my gosh. Did you know 23 years ago that this is where you were going to be today? No, no, not in my wild dreams. Not, not, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago if I knew I'll be here today, no, definitely not. And that's been one thing I have enjoyed in my life, which is to, which is to take the opportunities as they come along. Some I have capitalized on, some I have missed on, but never did long term planning, but I've really enjoyed it. That's great. You know, would you mind sharing an opportunity that you missed? Yeah, quite some some time back, maybe 15 years ago. Or so I had this opportunity to move from HR to business and join a consulting team focusing on HR consulting. And I gave it a pretty strong thought, but I think the sense of comfort of being in your own domain didn't allow me to take that leap. So, you know, that's one one opportunity I have 
thought about over a period of time that I, I definitely missed on. Well, it's worked out okay for you. Tell me about some of the other opportunities that you've you you know capitalized on them. I, I think those are, and, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot like that, but I think it's really good for other people to understand there are, you have the ability, it's not just once and done. We all get opportunities in life and it's a matter about, you know, how do we set ourselves up to be in a position to capitalize on them? So if you'd be so kind, please share Oh, absolutely. So this is the opportunity which I got to work in the job I am in currently or the organization I'm currently with Infosys. I used to be heading HR for a business in at Credit Suisse in India and uh, very, very nice job. I was doing very well. I probably had pretty, pretty decent progress for me if I continued there. And then came this opportunity where it was a very specific role. I was heading HR, so I had a full portfolio. And then this was a talent acquisition role, but it was in Europe, uh, based out of London. And though I had worked with Infosys in the past, I knew them quite well. But at the same time, this was a in my head at that point in time, it was a smaller role, but the whole opportunity to work outside of India and especially in Europe, which I had not done. And I said, this is an opportunity which takes me out of my comfort zone completely. It was also a mandate where we were looking to grow more in continental Europe. So really in the non-English speaking world. And I said, okay, you know, I've never done this. Why not take a chance and try and see what what guy can make out of it. When me and my wife discussed about it, we said it's going to be two years because we both loved living in India where what we were doing. And we said two years, let's see the world a little bit. We'll go around Europe. It'll be a it'll be a good experience. Ten years later, I'm still here. I moved from London to the US and it's still enjoying. Wow. So was it the what was the tipping point? Was it the challenge itself? Was it the opportunity to travel the world? I know you've been in India, the UK, Southeast Asia, you've been in all over North America, the EU, China. I mean, you've been <laughs> Japan, right? Like you've been all over these places. And, and, and is that just in the past 10 years or is that a combination of all the other? Um, so Southeast Asia has been common for a much longer time, but the rest of the world has been this last 10 years. So I can't be more grateful to Infosys for providing me this amazing, amazing platform and amazing opportunity for me to make a difference. 10 years ago, I started as talent acquisition leader for Europe, Middle East, Africa. And then today I am the global leader for talent acquisition, managing a very, very large portfolio. Just to give you a sense, we hire close to 40,000 plus people every year and across 32 countries from running large internal mobility, graduate programs, leadership programs to penetrating new geographies, countries, etc. It's been a phenomenal ride of for the last 10 years. Jesus. I mean, so emphasis, they're a service organization. So I can't even imagine the pressure that you must be under from a, a talent acquisition standpoint and, and development. I mean, that's a massive number, 40,000 people. I mean, that's some of the largest companies in the world are 40,000 people. And you're, you're <laughs> doing that. You're building the largest company, you know, one of the largest companies every year, year over year. Absolutely. That's the challenging part. Every hire I am not doing or my team is not delivering on is the revenue lost for the company and not even revenue lost as in in the future. It's revenue lost in on that particular moment itself, because as a professional services organization, staffing becomes very, very critical to the organization. So we work very closely with the business. In fact, I, I do 
probably more conversations with the leaders of the organization than within the HR world because that's what I live and breathe. Every single business opportunity is a talent acquisition opportunity too, be it in terms of growth, be it in terms of new regions, be it in terms of upgrading ourselves or going up the value chain in a particular account. So we think we are more part of the business. We sit right at the heart of our business rather than, you know, so-called support slash uh, business enabling function. And out of all of those things, is there one facet of helping to build these parts of business that, that you've encountered that's more challenging than the next? It's the part where we stand shoulder to shoulder to our sales and solutioning people to convince clients that we can deliver on very complex programs they trust us with or giving them the comfort that if they have, a, if a client has a large ambitious plan for, as I said, upgrading themselves, changing their technology or going into a new geography, we would be able to stand shoulder to shoulder to them and deliver for them. And I've done countless number of client presentations where we go and explain to them that why we are confident about bringing the best in class talent, provide the, provide them the right environment for us, for them to work with us long term and in the right time and the right cause at the right place, all of that stuff, right? So that, that whole, where the whole organization comes together to to make it happen for a client is probably the best part of my job. Wow. And when you say client, are you, are we talking internal, like the client base that you're serving? Or are you talking about external, the clients that you're either already servicing and looking to grow or that you're looking to bring in as new business? No, I'm talking about external clients. So uh, there are a lot of times when, especially these are all Fortune 500 companies, uh, a very large organization. We do a lot of critical, sometimes mission critical work for them. And hence, when they work with us, they want to be doubly, triply sure that we would be able to handle the challenges of managing their environment, bringing in the talent uh, who would be able to not just do the work, but also advise these large corporations on what could be the right way of doing technology. How would they structure their processes, which are centric to their their end clients? And hence, talent or talent acquisition becomes a very critical part of what they evaluate us on. So is that why it's so important for you to be in these meetings, not just from a selling standpoint, but then so you can really kind of get under the hood of what the the clients are looking to do, some of their goals. So it's better for you, not better, but so it's more, so it's good for you to understand what they're doing. So then you can in turn be in a position to recruit the right people into the organization that are going to, that are going to align with their goals. Oh, absolutely. And the way it works is, right, when you understand it firsthand, I'm able to go back to my teams, structure the right solutions. If I have to move my budgets around, if I have to move my team around so that we are able to create customized solution for a particular client scenario or a particular business unit internally, we do that all the time. When you hire large numbers or when you are so busy, it's very easy to get into a rhythm that, okay, I'm doing this and I'm not interested or I'm not worried about something else. And hence, it's constantly important to remind the larger talent acquisition team or the or the larger organization from time to time that we exist because of our clients and we have to be client-centric all the time. So be it in a very specific fashion that we have to hire some very specific skills for a particular engagement to building capacity for a particular business because they are going aggressive in the marketplace to win, win more 
business in a particular area. Or sometimes it's about thinking long term and saying, if we don't start our graduate programs in this particular areas, we would struggle three years later. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to the client, it gives you that complete picture of what are they thinking about? What are our businesses, internal businesses who are facing with the clients are thinking of? And then you start working on your strategy or changing your plans and tactically organizing the team so that we are constantly on top of our game or top of our internal client needs rather than get into the mode of firefighting. And what are the kinds of questions that you have to ask these clients to help you to really understand what you have to then in in turn go back to do to come up with this strategy, identify these right people and train them accordingly to be able to be successful? First thing is, it's always important to understand what success means for them. What would they think we have provide, or we have come up with the right people, right solutions, right strategy for the problems they are trying to solve. And once you understand what success looks like for them, because it's not always what's written on the paper, right? It's always in the people's heads. It's important to have that conversation. Second, it's about their expectations around quality of talent, their expectations around timing of it, their expectations around these days, different clients have, people want to have different assessments, people want to have different ways of looking at it. And we have to stand up and convince that we are not here to provide talent to you. We are here to provide solutions. Solutions are built by talent and we are here to convince you that our talent management philosophy from hiring to managing to retaining them are world-class for us to be able to take those challenges. And while I can give a very generic spiel, if I don't tailor it to what they are looking for in specifically, it's it never resonates. So it's always important to understand what success is for them, what are their pressure points, what timelines are they looking for, what would they be delighted with? And then you tailor your, your pitch to say, all of your requirements can be met this way, or there are certain gaps and these are our plans to work on them. I like that approach. So how is your success and the success of your team measured? It's very interesting that you ask this question. When you are a large hiring engine, numbers are your primary measurement, right? We work on quarterly demand, we work on full year demand, we work on ad hoc numbers, and we always have a way of measuring and reporting it back that, okay, you asked us this much, we delivered so much, are we doing good or bad? And the second thing, so that was always the easy part in in the world. And then the relevant bosses would double click on the effectiveness, right? Am I doing this or the larger team is doing it on the right parameters like cost, quality, timeliness, or the, the very, very traditional talent acquisition matrix. But one thing we have started measuring more and more ourselves is, are we creating the right impact? End of a business period, be it a quarter, be it half year, be it, be it the full year, we do go reach out to our individual key stakeholders and ask for that feedback that, you know, did we do well? We delivered your numbers. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we exceed your expectations. But were we able to create that impact? Were we able to give you that comfort that for you to stand in front of your clients and say we would be able to deliver these programs and projects? And when we get that feedback, I think that's the most satisfying part of uh, measurement. 
we are also extremely data driven organization so as a recruiting function i'm on top of what hiring we are doing where are our gaps you know on a daily basis i have a dashboard which says that which recs are going in rec which recs we are doing pretty well or what are the challenges we are facing in a particular geography or a particular business and hence have the ability to maneuver that around on a regular basis Well, so when you talked about some of those other things that you're measuring, they're they're a little more qualitative in terms of just getting the feedback from the user or the stakeholder. How much does that go into the decision of hey, this you guys are doing really well versus not? I think it's a big part. While numbers speak for themselves and they are integral part of hiring matrix and reporting and and my performance appraisal at the end of every year, but the qualitative feedback and that feedback where business considers that we are helping them to deliver is an extremely important part of how I am measured in particular, how the team is measured or the function is measured as a whole. Mm. How has technology affected recruiting? It's helped. It has helped a lot. Ten years ago, or maybe slightly more, there were platforms like LinkedIn, which changed the paradigm of recruiting. And I think now data and analytics, or data analytics and AI, are changing the paradigm of recruiting in a in a very meaningful fashion. And I think doing things like uh, automated sourcing, matching, is becoming mainstream already. But more importantly, your ability to reach out to talent pools who were not easily accessible because now you have data and ability to do so your ability to analyze data about your own recruiting what you have done or not done and focus on areas which you need to or go and share that with the larger organization or a particular business so that you can influence them on their talent strategy as a whole is become so easy and faster last but not the least the whole automation paradigm where you're constantly looking at repetitive tasks to get automated and hence recruiters are becoming freer and freer to actually do more advisory role both with the candidate as well as with the business leaders or the hiring manager community where you're able to provide help on you know are you really looking for this kind of talent if this talent is not available what are alternate talent pools to look at and advising candidates on their not just on a particular job but on the on the career and so on and so forth so i would say data analytics and ai automation is is what is really really changing recruiting today so i'm a recovering recruiter myself i used to own an executive search firm and i got very disenfranchised with recruiting in general and and mm-hmm. i'll share why and I, and i'd love to get your perspective on it so some of the best hires and the best results that i ever had had nothing to do with the resume there were the kinds of relationships that I had where maybe someone was turned down originally and I called him up and I said listen I know what your business is and I also know how you operate and I think this is the kind of person actually I don't think I know this is the kind of person that's going to be right for you and and I've got some amazing stories that support this approach you know I've built departments of companies family offices there's some highly successful people that are sitting on Wall Street right now that were originally turned down because their resume wasn't i guess quote unquote right and and that would have definitely been missed in some of this technology so all the clients or the people that we worked with they just wanted to see a certain things on a piece of paper so i'd i'd love to get your perspective on that and also you know how important the skill set itself is versus that pedigree 
that maybe the AI is uh, looking for and just the education in general? Well, Adam, you bring a phenomenal point, right? I think the whole system of particular ways of learning through an education system, and then you have a certain set of colleges on your profile and then certain kind of organizations or kind of work experience, which always got you the job, right? And the initial effort on using AI on that was that you would just continue to work with that bias, if I may call it, that you will continue to build that algorithm, which will give you people of very similar kind on a constant basis. I'm not talking about that as an AI, because that would be failing our own professions. Unfortunately, the world has used degrees slash GPAs slash anything else, which has, or the name of the college, right? If you're from Ivy League or top 20 or whatever else categorization of colleges or schools you have as the proxy for quality of a candidate, because everybody measured education and not skills. But look at where it has landed us as a world, right? In the United States alone, close to 40% of uh, graduates are either underemployed or unemployed. And when I say underemployed, they might might have studied something, but they might be doing something completely different because those are the jobs available. I studied recently that in the US, when you ask the high school students, a vast majority of them want to choose business studies related, you know, graduation or further education, while most of the jobs available in the industry are around technology, engineering, healthcare, and and so on and so forth. So there, there is already a big charm which is created between the education system and the employment world. And hence, I strongly believe the future, even now, I think there is a strong pivot we are doing from degrees to skills. And the ability to understand an individual of for what skills they bring. And more importantly, what aptitude they have to learn is probably the single most important skill an individual can have. And then it's the ability for organizations like ours or others to be able to provide them a platform to learn, a platform to prove themselves, and then grow into the organization. And I'll give you an example. I'm, this is not a, a hollow conversation I'm doing, we as a company are running a pretty ambitious program right now where we're looking to, you know, technology companies have traditionally hired STEM graduates. We also used to do that couple of years, till a couple of years ago. Then we, when we looked at the larger ecosystem of talent around us, we realized that that's never going to be enough. If you look at the STEM talent competition, the top tech firms pay phenomenally higher than the average tech firm pays. And hence, there is a very, very big inequity in the job market. Plus, the average STEM graduate is also difficult to hire, and they're already at a higher cost. So it's going to be unsustainable, even in short run, forget about long run. Mm. So what we did is, we are now looking at community college system. There are, compared to about 400,000 STEM graduates in the US, there are 2 million community college graduates. And if I include people who drop out after high school diplomas, that's for the bigger number. So what we're saying is we'll go to the community college systems, we'll go to the high, high school diploma holders and assess them for their aptitude first. Do they have it in them to become, to start technology jobs? They will not start at the upper end of programming jobs, 
but they will start at good technology. We'll train them to start what we call it as the digital backbone jobs. And not just start them there, but provide them a pathway, provide them an apprenticeship scheme so that they are earning, they are learning, and they are progressing in the organization. And over a period of time, we hope to create a completely new talent pool which didn't exist in the society. And we can actually help ourselves because this is a talent pool which we feel will be more committed, would be more focused, come, helps us manage our economics very well and does well to do these individuals and the communities they come from. So we, we are actually very strongly focused on this program and we think we will be able to make it successful. Wow. All right. I got a lot to discuss here on this one. So first, let me make sure I'm just recapping and yep. I'm just going to talk at a very high level. First of all, so skill set to you is paramount. Then you've got so it's the skill set itself. Then you've got the aptitude, the ability for these people to learn. And then the the next part of your success formula is your own in-person or your own emphasis training. Am I right? Did I miss something? No, these are the three key ingredients. Yeah, those are great. And I love the fact that you're going after the, you know, maybe the lesser known colleges or the community colleges. I don't know if you read or if you're familiar with uh, Malcolm Gladwell, but he had, uh, I don't know if you read his book, I forgot, oh, David and Goliath. And in David and Goliath, one of the studies or one of the chapters he talks about is, is, do you choose, do you go to an Ivy League school and do you finish somewhere in the middle or is it better for you to go to a state school and be in the top? And statistically, you can't even argue the difference in terms of, you know, it's so much better to go to the state school, save the money, finish the top, you're going to do better, you're going to get higher, you'll be recruited at a different level. And then my other takeaway from that is, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but in case you're just not or anyone that's listening, I've got to assume that when you're kind of going for these quote unquote underdogs, that you're also building a heck of a lot of loyalty. The fact that you're not overlooking them, you're investing in these people, you're kind of taking them under their wing, and then you're training them accordingly. So I've got to assume that that's, you know, that you are building some loyalty. Are you seeing that? Yes, early days, but also please understand that a lot of these are underrepresented or people who did not get these opportunities. In fact, when we went to the community school colleges first time, a lot of people didn't apply to us while the we went with, you know, about much above average market compensation, very interesting value proposition from learning and growing. But a lot of people didn't believe us that these are the jobs for them. And they didn't think that companies actually came to their colleges or their ecosystems to offer jobs like this. So we had to do a lot of education that oh, these are real we are interested in this. We want to really make it into a larger process for both you as students and employees or future employees and for us as a company. So absolutely, it comes with a lot of positives. I think that's great. Out of curiosity, what percent of talent, just going back to the applicant tracking systems that are out there and, and the AI, and I don't expect you to know the answer to this, but what would you guess is the percentage of great candidates that you're missing out on because of that. So you mean to say, if we use AI, how many candidates we would miss out who would be great and but our systems would not pick them up? Correct, and not necessarily your systems. I'm, I'm just talking high level. I, it just amazes me. There are so many people that I know that are so talented, either people that I've worked with in the past or people when I was in recruiting that I've gotten jobs for, that I, again, that I've spoken with on regular basis that are not having success getting jobs these days 
and they've shared their resume, not the resumes, they've shared the the job postings with me too. And and I'm just, I'm just, I can't figure it out myself either. So I'm, I'm so curious to how many, you know, what's the percent? I mean, I'm, I'm just seeing a high percentage of people that are really good that aren't even getting interviews. I don't know because I haven't really done that research, but what I would say is it's very easy to buy an AI tool and configure it to do what you're doing. It's not that difficult, but as talent and HR leaders, we all need to ask that question to ourselves. What are we using it for? And are we doing it the right way? Remember, when a recruiter was doing that job, a recruiter has human instincts. They would look at a CV as a human being. And if you start screening or sourcing candidates only based on an algorithm, that algorithm will never have the human eyes. Mm-hmm. It'll only look at based on parameters. So we need to be very, very conscious of what we are trying to do. There are some things which you can use it without thinking too much where, where you're looking for, for example, if I'm looking for uh, any high school graduate, that's a very easy way of uh, yeah. sifting through. But when you're looking for more experienced people or more more people with diverse background, let it not either bring the human bias into it or let it not take away the human ingenuity out of it where human-to-human interaction can actually do the magic, as you said, hundreds of stories about people who wouldn't have got jobs based on their CVs, but they ended up being very successful. So I think that's very, very critical before any of the technology is deployed in, in the recruiting processes. Yeah. When you're training the people that you're bringing on, is there anything that you're doing to help them from a communication standpoint in terms of like developing relationships with the client or being able to interact amongst themselves? You mean within my recruiting team or the larger? No, just the people themselves. Because in technology, I mean, I'll give you an example. So my business now, I go in and I train organizations and I teach them in a variety of things, whether it's leadership, whether it's just getting along and things like team, things of that nature. So Mm -hmm. there was a a technology firm that I went into last summer and it was real. I'm not going to take you through the whole thing and bore you, but the quick and dirty is there was an exercise that I did that got people to interact and talk with each other. And one of the, I get, I get a call two weeks later from the uh, the person that runs the company and they says, you know, I got good news and bad news. And I said, okay, what is that? And the punchline is there were two people that started dating as a result of what I went in and taught them. And I says, okay. And I'm like, I don't, and I'll, they're like, well, the, it was so good that people started dating. When I started talking to them more and more and getting, you know, getting under the hood to figure out what happened, it turned out there were two people that actually sat three cubicles down from each other. They worked together for a year and they'd never had a conversation before. They'd never even spoken. And the company told me that this is not abnormal that this is a lot of people that come in they just they're very focused and they're good they're very good at their job but they have a hard time uh from the socialization standpoint so they have a hard time being able to promote them further so they can't get further within their organization and they can't go farther they can't get in front of the clients either just because of from that perspective so that's a that's a challenge that they have and they said that it's you know that they're not alone they're part of other they talk to other companies that do the same things and that's something that they're grappling with. So I'm, I'm curious if that's something that you're bumping into. And if it is, how do you do that? What are, what are you doing to help? I wouldn't say we have that challenge as a, 
at large. There might be pockets which could face different challenges. But we as a company have a very, very strong fundamental belief on investing in our people in terms of learning and development. It's almost like a core value to us. We coined this word called learnability very early on in our in our organization's life. Our founders actually came up with that, that your ability to learn is the key differentiator you would have. So we run what we call it as uh, the world's largest corporate university out of India, uh, where we are headquartered. It's spread across 400 acres. We can train 14,000 people residentially at any point in time. 14,000? Yeah. <laughs> it's as big as any yeah. university. Yeah. We have close to 1,000 educators, teachers who, who are busy doing curriculum design to take the courses, to do research around some of the topics and so on and so forth. And along with this, we have a very, very strong professional skills development group who are very focused on everything what a consultant needs. You're right, right? When, when a lot of uh, kids come out of school, they probably are not ready to go and stand in front of the client. And second, we are a global organization and hence people come from various backgrounds and cultures and languages in which they study. So you also need to bring that consistency in terms of how you're able to interact with clients in different parts of the world. So a lot of communication skills, a lot of professional skills about working in teams, managing yourself, managing uh, the time. And in these times where the, you know, working in agile mode is the core, you also you need, you know, dealing with ambiguity. And then as you grow into the organization, your managerial skills, and then of course your leadership skills. So we, we have our Infosys Leadership Institute, which focuses on the top 500 to 1000 leaders in the organization, really, really providing them individualized focus and learning. So yes, learning is a big, big part of our organization. You know, in spite of all that, I wouldn't say that we don't have challenges. We always have challenges, right? Because we are a lot, we are 250,000 people organization. And, and hence, this is a constant effort. As much as I am recruiting, my counterpart in learning and development is constantly worried about if we have the right quality of people, both with technical skills as well as the professional skills. Wow, that's a huge selling point, by the way, that you're investing that much in your people. That's actually one of the big, and I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I know that's one of the biggest things that people are looking for these days is the investment in the L&D space. So as a potential employee coming to an organization, that could be a huge differentiator to help you ascertain that talent. So so kudos, nice job. Absolutely. We are, we are building actually our new campus, training campus here in the U.S. in Indianapolis. And it should be ready next year for us to start using this for our U.S. talent. Yeah, that's going to do very, very well. Rajesh, I, I got to thank you. This has been an, uh, a great conversation, extremely insightful. Love what you're doing. Uh, I think that you're really, you're finding the gems that are out there. And I don't know how you're doing that at, at the rate that you're doing that. It's just, that's, that is impressive. I'm getting grayer and grayer by the hour, so that's how I do it. <laughs> hey, well, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Likewise, Adam. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. You're welcome. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to networkwise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, Subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.